Hello, welcome to episode number 52 of Gunfighter Cast. I've actually got the man, the myth, the legend, Steve Kosky on right now. How you doing, Steve? Don't say that. You're making me all nervous. Well, everybody knows how awesome you are. If they don't, <laughs> you know, they will after this. Steve is a, a very big into IDPA, and he has a lot of knowledge about it. From what I understand, he's basically a walking rule book. Uh, if you've listened to episode number 50 with the Peacocks, uh, they mentioned Steve and really helping them out and uh, learning what they're supposed to be doing, what they're not supposed to be doing, and just uh, moving them along and, and getting better at uh, shooting IDPA. So, Steve, tell us a little bit about your background uh, in, in IDPA and pretty much, uh, you know, your accomplishments, I guess. Well, I kind of came into shooting right as IDPA came into being, so it was kind of good timing. I had shot, I don't know, four to six uh, IPSC matches before IDPA was created. And then right as IDPA came into being in 96, I founded a little club out here in Utah. And we started shooting IDPA matches. And some of our first matches were up on BLM land with four shooters. And we'd shoot a stage, and then we'd tear it down, and then we'd move stuff around and shoot a second stage. And we'd do that three or four times and have a little four-stage match. So now we got a regular club shooting... Matches uh, about eight matches a year of IDPA here in Utah, and having a good time with it. It's been a fun hobby. That's cool. And you've uh, you've won quite a bit, right? What what have you won? I've shot quite a bit. I've won. A, I win occasionally. <laughs> I, I've managed to win stock service pistol champion uh, twice in Idaho, twice in Colorado, and once in Arizona at state level matches. Nice. At the and world. At the yeah, world I was getting ready to ask that. You just shot at the yeah. world shoot. How'd you do in that? Uh, out of 28, I can't remember how many it was, 27 or 28 master class shooters in stock service pistol, I finished 10th. So my goal was to finish in the top half there, and I, I broke into the top half just barely. So so you're, you're like 10th in the world. You, no, no, I was 20th overall in the whole match, so I'm 20th in the world. Oh, okay. I mean, somewhere out there, you probably included there are 19 shooters better than yeah. me, so. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the joke my friend tells me. He's like, dude, you're 20th in the world. I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, you know, not everybody went and competed, but still, you know, the, those are the people who, uh, you know, did well in their states, I guess, and countries and came over and shot. And that's definitely, uh, I guess a prestigious title, man. That's, uh, that's an accomplishment. I would be proud of that if I were you, you know? Yeah, to give you some perspective, I'm kind of, I'm probably at the bottom maybe middle third of the master class. There are definitely some uh, shooters that are just way more talented and way more skilled than me that I will never touch. Um, I just don't have those abilities. Yeah, so but you're I'm, probably I'm also... Shooter, but I'm, not, I'm not up at the top or really even in the middle, so... Well, a lot of those guys, you got to put them... I mean, you go to work every day, you know, your regular job, and you go do your thing, and there's people at the top, you know, how many would you say that are just the, basically the... Uh, the guys who basically just shoot for a living that, you know, they got sponsors, they wake up, they go to the range and that's pretty much what they do shooting for, you know, the big name companies and big name gun manufacturers on the team where they really don't have other jobs. How many of those do you think there would be above you? You know, I don't know. My guess is that it's not a big number. You know, the Rob Lethem kind of guys that are that right. good. Um, my guess is probably fewer than 10 in the country that don't have to have a regular job. So my, something like that. I'd be surprised if it was more than 10. Well, it'd be interesting to see if you got to that level to where you didn't have to go to work and you just shot guns for a living. Uh, you might be the next Rob Latham. 
I don't know. If you seen if you see Robbie shoot, it's. it's I haven't seen him in person. I've seen videos. He's uh, he's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's impressive. Yeah, him and Mitchellek, you just watch those guys shoot, and it's just fun to watch. It's like you know, I'll never be there, but this is fun to watch. It's, so. it's kind of discouraging too. You're like, oh, you know what? I'll never be that good. You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. I can win a state match as long as those guys don't show up. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you make sure you, you pick your state that you live in and go shoot in away from them. You know, because you, you want yeah. a chance. <laughs> well, I hear the same thing about you. Whenever you go to the, the IDPA matches, they're like, "Yeah, Steve's here. I'm not going to win." No, not hardly. It's not like that. <laughs> All right. Well, tell us a little bit, a little bit about you. So I guess we've established your credibility and uh, you know, as a IDPA shooter. Tell us a little bit about IDPA, just you know, background. You talked about how you know it began or, or when it began a little bit, but uh, you know, what is IDPA? Well, it's a shooting sport, pistol shooting sport with kind of def- a defensive focus to it. It grew out of IPSC and USPSA, and then in the late '90s, Bill Wilson founded IDPA to kind of bring back some more practical gear. At that time in IPSC, in IPSC there were only two divisions: there was open and limited, and so. All the guns, uh, the open guns are just crazy guns. We, we like to call them movie guns sometimes because they hold 29 rounds and the muzzle doesn't come off the target when you pull the trigger. And Yeah, they're all race guns and 38 yeah. super. You know? Yeah. So you got the movie guns and then you had the limited guns, which was basically you could do anything but put optics or a compensator. So take an open gun, take off the optics and compensator, and you got a limited gun. And those were the only two divisions. And so if you wanted to go out and compete with other guys with your Glock 19 or, you know, your seven-round 1911, you just got your butt handed to you because you just didn't have a chance. You know, I think that's a good point. I When I first started looking into IPSC and IDPA, and I've never actually shot. I'm a member of IDPA, but I've never actually shot an IDPA match, and I'm really looking forward to it when I get back. But one thing, when I first started looking into it, I didn't really understand the difference between IPSC and IDPA, and I was thinking, well, I can't go out here and compete. I don't have a crazy race gun with an optic on it and a massive, you know, magwell where I just can't miss reloads and all this other stuff. I don't, and a little, you know, sexy bikini holster kind of thing that my gun barely sits in. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't have any of that stuff. There's no way I can go out here and compete with the times these guys have and the way they shoot, and I can't afford those guns. You know, I looked at some of the STI Grandmasters and stuff, and I was like, man, that's like, that's like a price of a car, man. I can't, I can't get into this. So I'm thinking, getting a little discouraged. Like, I, there's no way I can even compete. And then I realized the difference and, and saw what IDPA was. And it's a little bit more designed. Well, it's a drastically more designed, not a little bit, to basically whatever you carry every day, whether it's you know something inside the waistband or something outside the waistband, with your you know Glock 22, 19, you know XD, whatever you're carrying, you can go out there and you're going to be competing against people with. Similar rigs with similar setups with, uh, and if you go with the stock pistol, you're basically everybody's like you. You know, it's nothing. So the, uh, you're not yeah. going to win by throwing more money at it, basically. Yeah, IDPA has really done a good job of uh, keeping the equipment race down, not not zero, but keeping it down. So really, you can take a decent shooter, give him a five hundred dollar gun, and he'll win the match, whether it's brand A, B, or C. And, and new shooters, I mean, quite often people show up with a Uncle Mike's holster, Glock 19, a couple mag pouches, a couple boxes of ammo, and you're ready to go. That's all you really need. And the the stuff that the new the best shooters are using really isn't all that much different from that. So, what what do people a lot of times do to their guns? Since we're on that subject, just for uh, maybe a, a match rate barrel, and you know, just a couple little small things like that, or barrel. 
barrel change outs are less common because the accuracy you need in IDPA, you're not going to, you're not going to get any appreciable difference by changing a barrel. The common changes are usually sights. So one of the things that seems to be fairly common is like a, a thin uh, front sight, black front sight with a fiber optic in it, and then black rear sights. And some people like a black front also. They'll just get some nice black-on-black sights. So it's fairly common for people to change sights and uh, do a trigger job on a gun. Maybe if something came with a nasty trigger pull, they'll try and clean that up a little bit. Those are probably the two most common things. Uh, you'll see people every now and then they'll put skateboard tape on a gun like that on the grip to right. incre- increase their traction or something like that. But not a ton. So, I mean, you don't have to, you know, spend $2,000 modifying your gun. Yeah. So if you're, you know, you carry, you've already got a gun, you're ready to rock and roll. You're, you're basically, you're ready to go shoot IDPA, you know, with what you've got, you know, on your body right now. Plus a yeah. little bit of ammo. A little bit of ammo, and the only thing sometimes people need is a, an extra magazine or two. You, you need three. Four is nice. So if you only got one spare mag, get another one or two, and then you're ready to go. So That's simple. You probably need those anyway if you're actually going to go out to the range and train properly anyway. Yeah. Just stop and fill magazines all the time. Okay. So say, is it uh, if you wanted, somebody wanted to get an IDP, what do you, where do you suggest they start? What's the first thing they should do? I mean, this could be anywhere in the U.S., in any state where... They may or may not have IDPA. Where can they find out if there's IDPA in their area? Uh, go to IDPA.com, and there's a club listing link, and you click on your state, and it'll give you a list of clubs in the area, and you can click on their links. And if that if the clubs have a website, you can go look at their schedules, or it might just have an email address for the mass director. You can shoot him an email and find out what's going on. That's the best way. And then find out when a match is and either show up and watch one or show up and shoot one. I'm always a fan of the show up and shoot one. You go online. Go to some forum, go to your favorite forum and say, hey, I want to go shoot an IDPA match. What do I need to bring? Everyone, Someone there has been to a bunch of matches, and they'll say, oh, yeah, bring your gun, get three magazines, get a holster. You don't even need a mag pouch. I mean, well, after listening to this, they don't have to go to the forum and ask that because you're telling them what they need to bring. Yeah, there you go. You don't even really need a mag pouch. For your first few matches, you can just reload out of your back pocket. Uh, I did that for, for a while. Um, you know, ear and eye protection, some ammo and you're ready to go. Uh, most clubs will have some sort of a new shooter orientation before the match, or sometimes it's scheduled on a, the day before the match or something like that. So you might want to make sure that you're attending that before you show up at your match. But this, look at whoever you contact at that local club will give you some information on that. And then just show up, pay attention to that, follow the rules, and don't get DQ'd like Stan almost did at his match, his first match. Don't scare everybody away about the DQ. Yeah, that's true. You, you better edit that out. That's that's inappropriate talk here. <laughs> what, was Tom his safety officer? No, it was uh, me and another guy were running the stage there. So I, I hear Tom's Tom? pretty rough at safety officer, especially if someone's shooting pretty well. <laughs> you know, the, the times when Tom's been rough on people, I haven't been on the squad, so I've just kind of heard stories and I haven't been there to see it, but... I mean, the safety officer is kind of a tough job. You're there between the rules and the shooter and the course of fire description. And so sometimes you got to make some tough calls. And when it comes to safety, nobody likes to DQ anybody. But when you, you know, point your muzzle in an unsafe direction, the match is over. That's that's one rule we don't ever let people get away with. So Yeah, you got to do what you got to do. Safety yep. is the, uh got to go down, got to have fun. And, and you no, know, it's not fun if you're getting shot and you're shooting your body. That's right. Well, it's not fun if people start sweeping other people or doing crazy things like that. So, no. Nope. Well, we talked about what it is and 
you know, what you need to go out there and shoot IDPA. Probably need a little range bag. I know Carl actually use, uh, what does he use? Basically like a little toolkit bag thing. Yeah. And like if you got a, something that ca- a drill came in like that or, uh, that's what I've got. I, I haven't used it for, you know, a range bag, but I do have one. I was like, you know, this will work perfect. Or what is it? Uh, I've seen people Travis use a five- the bucket. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's. That's actually, that's fairly slick because when it, if you get some slack time, you set the lid on it and you sit your butt down on it and you got a chair right there. So that's kind of slick. I, yeah, I like man. that idea. It's, uh, it's a little ghetto, but. Hey, if you want to get into something cheap, because some people are like, you know, I can't afford a new hobby. You can really do this for not very much, man. Just, you know, the cost of ammo. And if you reload, you're even saving even more money. So it's not going to be that expensive. No, just double up some Walmart bags and come shoot, you know. There when you, you go. Save your range bag purchases for, you know, when you get a big tax return or something. So what are some questions that you're asked about IDPA the most often? Because that probably what the listeners of the show have in their mind. The biggest question you already covered, which is, what do I need to know before I show up at my first match? What do I need to bring? And we already kind of went over that. What else do I get asked about IDPA? Um, a lot of rules questions, but you're going to you're gonna learn the rules after you join IDPA and get a rule book and read it. And you know, go to a match or two. I wouldn't stress out too much about all the rules. Well, the, when One you thing- join IDPA right now, I don't know how long this is going to be going on, but uh, you get the rule book, which it isn't a very thick rule book, really. It's not very big at all. And you also get a, a DVD that you can watch where uh, he go. What's no his way! Name? I want a DVD. Yeah, you get a DVD, and uh, you're explained to a lot of different rules, and you know the way uh, you'll run stages and everything else. You come with it. It's uh. One of those Pantio product DVDs. Basically, what is IDPA? Got Bob Vogelow. I think that's who it is. When things are open to interpretation, who has the final say out there in the range? Is it the, the range fi- master? Yeah, the first say belongs to the safety officer, and then the final say belongs to the match director. So if the safety officer makes a call and the shooter really has some heartburn over it, he can say, uh, you know... I want you to, can we talk about this with the match director? And then he'll get the match director over, and the match director will say, yeah, thumbs up, thumbs down. Yep, so the, the final call's right there at the range. You don't, there's no arbitration procedure or anything like that. Just up, it's up to the match director. So I was at that Tuesday night steal in Phoenix a month or two ago, and I know Rob shoots that match a lot. It's on his home range there, but I didn't know he was there, and I've never met him. But I was standing back there, and there's a crowd of people up there, and all of a sudden I hear this voice. And I've, I've heard Rob interviewed on the radio a couple times, and I know his voice. I was like, oh, that's Rob Latham. So huh. I got to watch him shoot a stage, and I shot a little video of him and posted it without his permission. So I'm probably on the uh, stop the stalker list or something. Yeah. yeah well, you know, if, if you're going to stalk somebody, kind of pick somebody who doesn't shoot as good as Rob Latham. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> that's, that's not a good target. Yeah. Stalk a Sean Penn or something like that, you know? You, oh, yeah. You know you can kick his ass, and you know he's not got a gun. Oh, he's probably got five armed guys that are the size of trucks following him around. Yeah, probably. I hear people talking about a qualifier. Does that mean you have to shoot a certain uh, level to go out there and compete and qualify for a match? I know what it is, but uh, that was one of the things I was wondering about when I first you know, read about IDPA. What, what is a qualifier? What's that for? So there's a 90-round classification match that everybody's supposed to shoot once a year. Basically, how you finish in that match uh, determines your classification. If you're below a certain line, you're a novice. And if you're in the next rung, you're a marksman, and the next rung's a sharpshooter, and then expert, then master. 
And basically, once you classify, you know, you go out and let's say you go out and you shoot sharpshooter your first time. Well, then, in theory, at all the local matches and all the state matches you go to, you're shooting against the other sharpshooters in your division. So you're not shooting against, you know, Rob Leatham if he happens to come to that match. You're shooting against the six or eight or ten other sharpshooters. So that kind of breaks it down so it's not quite so intimidating at first. So if I go out there and I shoot master on my qual- my classifier, I mean, i got to go compete against the masters that are out there in IDPA? Yeah, but you're you're ready for it anyway if you shoot master. So, But maybe I'm really, really good at the classifier, and I'm a good shooter, but I'm just not used to the IDPA type stuff. Does that make sense? And that does happen. Every now and then you'll get someone who's very good at the class at the classifier and just they break down under match conditions and pressure and uh, a lot of unknown stuff gets thrown at them or you got to shoot while you're holding a 25-pound bag in your left hand or something like that. And none of that's tested in the classifier. And so, I mean, that happens, but that's okay. Yeah, you get uh, better other, the more you things, do it, I guess. Right. And the classifier, you're shooting it for a particular division. So if you shoot, let's say you went out and you shot master with your Beretta in stock service pistol, what some shooters will do is they'll say, oh, man, I don't want to, or I've made master, or, man, I don't want to go against all the big dogs in this division. So they'll switch divisions. They might buy a 1911 or pick up their old 1911 from the safe and start shooting in a custom defensive pistol, which is a 8-plus-1 round 45 ACP division. And so you, and, and let's say they go out and shoot the classifier on that and they only shoot uh, expert. Well, that now they're shooting against the experts, in that division and not the masters. So you can move around a little bit if you get uh, in an uncomfortable place. But So do you have sandbaggers that go out there and they, they shoot a classifier and they classify themselves low just so they can feel like winners? Oh, yeah. I, I think that happens everywhere. Yeah. And there's a there's a way if you classify, let's say let's say you're a decent shooter, but you go out and you, you kind of shoot a sloppy classifier and you only classify as... Uh, well, let's say you're, you're you're probably a master class shooter, but you you kind of slow down or take some bad shots or you, you do something stupid in the classifier and you shoot expert. Well, if you beat enough experts at a sanction match, you'll get automatically bumped up to the next uh, classification. You get bumped up to master. Mm. So that's kind of, that's kind of one one method that can solve the sandbagger problem eventually. That's good. Yeah, at least you got some kind of thing to combat that. Yeah, that happens now and then, but. The cool thing is, if you keep at it for a few years, you'll be up in the expert and master range. And once you get there, it the sandbaggers don't matter anyway, because you're you're shooting for you know you want to win, you you want to beat everyone in your division regardless of classification. So, well, that's the interesting thing. You, you talk to the big guys, you know, Mitchellick, you know, everybody else. I mean, not that I've talked to them, but uh, you hear them talking in interviews, and they all kind of say the same thing: that they're competing against themselves more than anything else, and not so much against the other people around them. You know, it's just uh, their, their time. They want to break their time that they had last time. They want to shoot with 100% accuracy. It's uh, They're always competing against themselves. You always hear the same thing. Yeah, I've shot some matches that I didn't win that I really felt good about because I kind of shot to my abilities on every stage. I mean, I didn't tank anything. I just kind of shot a smooth, steady match kind of right at my skill level. And I was like, you know, I came in third, but I shot a solid match. Those guys beat me fair and square. They're just better shooters. So That's cool. And, you know, the, with the gun community itself, the attitudes of the folks out there. Now, I'm sure once in a while you run across somebody who's pissed off about something. I mean, it happens, everything. But, uh, you know, generally, there's a good attitude out there, you know, and uh, a good sportsman-like uh, attitude, I guess you could say. Yeah, most of the time people are good sports. You have, you have some problems now and then, but not too often. 
Yeah, it's, it's going to happen. When humans are involved, someone's going to get pissed off about something. You know, just the way. When there's is. a when there's a classification system, someone's going to sandbag it. Yeah, it's going to happen. Yeah, what's the difference in a sanctioned match and maybe a match that is your local gun club? So sanctioned matches go through more scrutiny than a local match. A local match is going to be designed by you know, some guy at the club level, and then they just put it on. And a sanctioned match, they're going to have to apply for sanctioning to IDPA, and they're going to have to have the stages all approved by the area coordinator who says, oh, this is an IDPA legal stage and this one's not legal, you can't use that one, or you need to modify it like this to bring it in line with the rules. So you get better stages. Generally, the sanction matches, there are more complex stages. There's more moving targets, more activators. So it's more fun. The, the better props, like the stage, uh, the match in Idaho, it seems, well, I think every year except this last year, we do a stage where we're shooting out of a Kubota, which is a four-wheel drive vehicle of sorts. And sometimes you are the passenger in the vehicle, and the driver's flooring it, driving around a course, and you're shooting out the side. Sometimes you're sitting on the back shooting it. Um, well, that'd be fun. And they've had a couple a couple years. They had a course where you're driving a golf cart and shooting it while you're driving it, which is uh, pretty hard. So some people will drive up, stomp on the brakes, shoot, and then uh, get back on the gas. And other people will try and uh, shoot with one hand or two hands while the golf cart's moving. You know, kind of slow it down and you know, a variety of different ways to try and do it. But that's that's really fun. And yeah, you know, that local like match. And they and they have they charge more for the match. The match fees are you know usually fifty to eighty five dollars or something like that for uh, sanctioned matches. So they have more money to spend on props and stuff like that. Whereas your local match fee is going to be probably fifteen to twenty dollars or something. Uh, and the sanctioned matches they're they're bigger. There are more stages. You probably see you know twelve to sixteen or twenty stages as opposed to a local match, which might only be four to. 10 stages or something like that. And they probably two-thirds of the time they have a prize table. So the match organizers will get a bunch of prizes donated from Springfield and Bullet Companies and yeah. Brownells and stuff like that. And so they'll have a whole whole bunch of prizes. And some of the prizes can be quite good. I mean, there can be two or three or four guns on the prize table. And the drawings are random. So, I mean, even the guy who kind of a middle-of-the-road shooter could get drawn first and could win a gun at a match like that. And I have some friends of mine that have won two and three guns and have only shot like four or five sanctioned matches. And it just burns me up to no end. Because I've, I've never won one. In all these years, I've not won a gun. And these turkeys show up and start taking all the guns. So, But that's the way it works. So let's say someone's sitting at home listening right now, and they're like, you know what, I'm going to go shoot at EPA. And they're on the Internet right now. They're finding their local match where they can go shoot at. Is it possible for someone to start right now and be able to shoot at the IDPA Worlds next year? Probably. Uh, well, first of all, they've only had one world championship in 2011, and they'll probably, I don't know what this plan is for that, but they're definitely not going to have it every year. So it'll be a national championship again. Oh, they're not going to do it every year. Okay. In 2012, it'll, it'll just be called a national championship. And they let, uh, most of the shooters are admitted based on the number of, cla- of uh, sanctioned matches they shoot. So if basically it's to kind of reward the people that are already active in IDPA and are out there shooting sanctioned matches. So it's not to say that they won the sanctioned match, it's that they shot no, the sanctioned no. match. Right. So okay. if you go out and shoot a couple sanctioned matches, you'll probably be able, you know, they'll probably take your application for nationals and, and you'll be allowed to go. 
But if you've never shot a sanctioned match, sanctioned match, and you send in your application to nationals, yeah, I, I don't, you know, depends how many people apply for the match if if they'd let you come or not. And then the thing they're doing this year, which is kind of cool, so that's like most of the slots are allotted that way, but they have like 30 slots that they're just going to give away by random drawing. So maybe you've never shot a sanctioned match before, or maybe you live in a state where there aren't, there isn't one, or you can't afford to go drive to one. You can still send in your application, and it might get pulled out of the hat in that in that chunk of 30 shooters. So that's cool. I'd be fine going and doing something shooting national. I like that. You basically it's a few days, right? You know, you're, you're kind of going somewhere and hanging out and you know, doing your thing for. Uh, I imagine it all doesn't happen in one day. Yeah, you shoot on two days. Well, I've never been to nationals. The only, uh, the biggest match I've been to was that world shoot last fall. Oh, I've never done nationals. I only go to worlds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna try and go to nationals this year. We'll see. We'll see if I can get in. But there, the for, the shooting format was you shot one afternoon. And then the next morning, so you shot on two days, uh, or you might shoot one morning and then have that afternoon off, and then have the next morning off and shoot the following afternoon. So everybody has to shoot in an afternoon and in a morning. Uh, so you know you can all claim that the sun was in your eyes equally, and mosquitoes bit you and stuff like that. So yeah, but that so that was a two-day for- shooting format there, and I don't know if the I don't know if that's the way the nationals normally are, but they're the, they put on a lot of stages. You know, there'll be twenty plus stages there, and it's you just can't shoot that many. I don't think you can shoot that many in one day. Yeah, or people probably get tired of shooting in one day that much. Yeah, exactly. All right, All right hey, let's get back to the rules for just a second. Now, I know I have a lot of military that listens to the show. What is it? There, there are some the things in IDPA that pertain just for us active duty military guys, right? Like wow, the gear. We don't have to go by all the rules. The the, gear, the way you wear the gear. If we're wearing our, our actual duty rigs? That's right. If you're wearing duty gear, even though your holster, like if you have a thigh holster or something, that's not legal for the rest of us to use an IDPA. But if you're a, if you're military personnel or a law enforcement officer, then you can use your actual duty rig. Um, I mean, so long as it's a strong side holster, you can't use a cross draw holster or a shoulder holster or something like that. But if it's a strong side holster, they're going to let you use it. And you're also not going to be required to use concealment. Uh, you know, a good fraction of the IDPA stages are shot from concealment. But, yeah, if you're military or law enforcement, you don't ever have to do that. And he wants to wear his duty gear. He wants to shoot it in a duty-type situation, you know. He wants practice coming out of his duty gear without concealment because he's probably not wearing a concealment garment over his duty belt. Yeah, so they waive that rule for those guys, which I think is a great idea because I mean, yeah. you want them to come out and shoot. And if you want to shoot from your duty gear and get better at those skills, you know, God bless you. So that's a wonderful way to tune up those skills. What's the rule? you got to have, uh, like, a holster back behind your, your uh, trouser seam or something like that and magazines as well. Does that sound about right? Yeah, the front of your magazine pouch is supposed to be behind the center line of your body as viewed from a line coming down from the middle of your armpit going straight down. So it doesn't really matter where the seam in your pants are oh. ends up because, I mean, who knows how pants are made. It's really kind of if you stand at the side of someone, look at the middle of their armpit and draw a line straight down, the front of your mag pouch has to be behind that. And so does the pad of the trigger when your gun's holstered. So you can bring your gun pretty much square on the side of your hip, you know, right at 3 o'clock. But you can't cheat it around up, you know, further up front. But even that right there, law enforcement and active duty military, they uh they don't have to go by that. They wear it how they would normally wear it, right? 
Yes, but I've never seen a duty rig that had the gun, you know, pushed around front. But well, you know, I don't have mine pushed, but you know, even my Safari Land leg holster, you know, it it moves around depending on how where I walk or whatever. You know, it's not like exactly staying. I'm not RoboCop where you know he pops out <laughs> of his leg in the same spot every time. You know, it's yeah. uh, that's the thing that that sucks about thigh holsters. One, they're uncomfortable, and uh, you know, two, they're uh. They, they move around a little bit, and if you get them too tight, then they're even more uncomfortable. So you're always kind of fighting back and forth, no matter oh, what fun. holster you go with. But, uh, I mean, they might look cool, but I, I don't like having things on my leg. But, you know, there is a lot of times where it does kind of, you know, move to the front. And depending on how I have it on my belt right there, it's, uh, might pull it that way a little bit. But it's not, uh, that I'll have to look next time I put it on to see where my, the pad of my trigger is, if it's, you know, behind the sternal line of my body or not, because I'm really not sure. Yeah. Um- you know, if it's if it's a little bit in front, my guess is that that rule does apply because you're you know you're allowed to use your duty rig. Now, so one caveat, though, my magazines are very far forward of the center line of my body. Right, and a lot of police officer magazines are also. They're you know right you know right at eleven o'clock or something, and the, you know so that's fine for them. They're exempt from the normal magazine pouch placement rules. Okay. The one thing for uh, police officers that they do enforce is if you're going to wear your duty gear, you have to wear all of your duty gear. So if you carry, I mean, you can't basically take everything off your belt except the holster and the mag pouches. you got to carry your, your normal duty uh, bag of garbage you got wrapped around your belt. Although I do think they allow you to not wear a radio or like a non-collapsing baton because they don't want to be destroying like $5,000 radios. Yeah. And I, I don't know why the baton rule is, but, but they do want you to wear all your stuff if you're wearing cuffs and pepper spray and all that kind of garbage, you got to wear it for the whole match. So cool. All right. An interesting, interesting little twist. And so, Daniel, if you come and shoot a match, you have to have all your grenades on. Ah, yeah. Let's go with the belt. Yeah, yeah. I you're probably disappointed in my uh, what goes on my belt. It's a, a holster and some magazines and uh, a seatbelt cutter. Oh, and a drop pouch. Where do the grenades go? Uh, on my body armor somewhere. But you know what? Oh, okay. I'm usually the last one. I like that whenever somebody's issued, even in Iraq or whatever, somebody's issuing grenades. I'm the last one to go get grenades because I, I don't like grenades. I, grenades scare me. <laughs> well, grenades themselves don't scare me. Like uh, if, I, if I'm if i the only one with a grenade and I'm handling it in my hand, it's not a big deal. But whenever you pile in on an AAV, like amphibious assault vehicle, and you got 20 people in a, the, <laughs> a place the size of for five people, and, you know, the first time you see a grenade, which I've seen this happen, uh, just start rolling around on the ground. You know, between, oh my between packs and people are just kind of kicking it around. Uh, you know, <laughs> I start like disliking grenades a little bit more. Or uh, yeah, the puck, the pucker factor kicks yeah. into high gear there. Or we had to jump on a different track one time in Iraq, and uh, I, I was uh, a section leader for uh, uh, assault team, which is uh, they we we handled a small, the shoulder fired multi-purpose assault weapon. It's a uh, it's a rocket launcher, and uh, these things you load into the back of, of the uh, the launcher itself. And then you turn them and you take them off or whatever after you fire it. If you bring the top of it off and you, you take the, the tip of it off there, if you have an HE round or HEAA, the anti-armor round, it sticks out a good like inch and a half out of the end of it. And it's just this little, it's all bright silver color and it's got a little cylindrical, uh, a cylinder, uh, on the end that comes out of a smaller tube and it just looks mean. And this thing sticks out a good inch or so past the, the, 
area where you're protected. And first time you see one of those laying on the ground in that AEV and Marines just stepping on it and walking on it, you're like, oh my goodness. It's, uh, <laughs> we had to throw them all in the AEV real quick and get out of somewhere real quick. And, uh, but as soon as you can, you know, we try to put them on the walls and, and strap them up so that doesn't happen. Like, please do not step on the high explosive anti armor, you know, warhead and yeah. create a shape charge in this little tiny area that we're in. It would be very I, nasty. I know it's not supposed to go off by stepping on it, but please. Yeah. Let's, let, <laughs> you know, let's treat this thing with a little respect. <laughs> it shouldn't, but these things are made by the lowest bidder, you know, so <laughs> let's not step on it. Let's not push our luck. Yeah. Grenades, I, man, they, I, don't, I don't like them. Yeah, it's I nice can see that. Need, it's nice when you got bad guys somewhere and you need to throw something in there, you know, send a grenade instead of a marine or send a rocket instead of a marine, but you know, it's uh it's getting from there point A to that point, you know, that uh that scares me, I guess you could say. Right. But uh it's all good. So, so you never you never flopped down in the back of the vehicle and, and uh climbed on top of the grenade waiting for it to go off? Oh no, I, I would rather not do that. Most people who've done that get medals of honor and they don't live to tell about it. <laughs> That's right. I've read a lot of those stories. As a matter of fact, a few years ago when I was uh, working at a steel mill, I uh, spent a little time and I went through, I read every single Medal of Honor citation. And that is some cool reading. It really makes you appreciate yeah. what people have done for this country and the type of dedication people have. So I, if you haven't done that, I, I don't even remember what the website is. I'm sure you could find it in an instant. Just Google Medal of Honor well, citation. You read all those? I had a little time. But that's that's worth doing. I'd I'd highly recommend that. Well, it's kind of the same thing, you know. We're kind of off IDPA, but uh, the Navy SEAL, Maki or Michael Monsoor, he did that. You know, jumped on that grenade. That's an awesome story too. You read about that guy. We on the AFN, the Armed Forces Network channels here. Well, I say in Okinawa, but right now I'm in Iwakuni. They play a lot of these things and tell stories about Medal of Honor and things that happen in history. You know, just keep, keep some propaganda going for the families. And, yeah. Uh, you know, military in the area and stuff. And uh, you know, his his story is just it's incredible, man. The uh, you got your buddies right there, and there's your grenades. So you know what? We could possibly live. They could get hurt. We could get hurt. They still got to fight because we're getting pressed by the enemy hard. You know, very quickly within you know a second or so, make the decision. I got to jump on this grenade and kill myself and take this blast uh, so that these guys can keep fighting and and you know hopefully they can live and get out of this. Yeah, that's uh. You really sit down and think about that, man. It's uh, it's incredible. I mean, just well, there's there's not a lot of time to die. sit around. There's, there's no time to sit around there and weigh the consequences. I mean, you're either you either do it right now, or every everyone could die. And yep. It's amazing. I remember reading some of those citations from World War II where these these guys would dive on a grenade, and it would be a dud. And they'd get back up, keep fighting, and you know <laughs> their their leaders their leaders would end up would report the situation and they'd get a medal of honor oh yeah you you gotta get one i mean it, what else can you do for somebody who does that i mean that's just that's incredible it's just you you know you're gonna die you know it's over it's uh yep what do you do after you jump on that thing and it's a dud i mean how happy are you man <laughs> i don't even know what would run through your mind like, i wasn't expecting home, to be here <laughs> well, i guess every second after that is like even more of a gift you know than, than life already is it's, yeah that's crazy true. All right, so can you think of anything else about IDPA? One of the things I really like about IDPA is it allows you to shoot kind of real-world gear. And it gives you some scenarios to shoot. I mean, it's most of the time the targets aren't moving. You're not really fighting for your life. So, I mean, there are some things that make it not exactly like, you know, maybe the best 
combat training, you know, the best uh, defensive training you can get. But it is a great place to to work on your skills. And I think if you combine, you know, shooting a few IDPA matches a year and then pick up some good handgun uh, or just good defensive training courses, you know, maybe one a year, one every year and a half or something, along with shooting IDPA, you have a pretty good balance. Yeah, you know, you'll your skills will climb, and then your your defensive knowledge and awareness will also be climbing. And you're, you're probably doing a reasonably good job of keeping yourself and your family safe. Well, the one thing you really get, and you don't get this by yourself, if you're just carrying and, and you're in your house, uh, you say your wife doesn't carry, uh, she's not into guns, but you know you are. You're not getting anybody to hold you to a standard of safety. You know, you bought that pistol to protect your family, but there's really nobody that's saying, look, you know, you're handling that weapon improperly. You're, you're not being safe. Look what you're doing. You know, out there at the IDPA match, you're getting constant reinforcement. You're not going to get away with doing anything, uh, unsafe. So you're going to take that back home with you when you're loading and unloading and cleaning your weapon, you know, right there at the house around your family that you bought that gun to protect. So you definitely, you may not get the very best in, you know, tactical combat dynamic critical incident whatever but you are definitely going to come back with uh some good habits of good safety that's a great point i've met a lot of shooters that have been shooting for you know a number of years and i go over to their house and they start sweeping me with guns and it's like dude i know you've been shooting but let's talk about safety here and so we go through it and they're like oh you know i never even knew i was doing that but you go to an idpa match and that'll get beat into your head right quick and that's so that's a great point. The other thing that crossed my mind is the standard of shooting ability. You know, some people think, you know, man, I'm a great shooter. I could I could do this. I could handle myself in any kind of a shooting situation. And you go out to a match and you all shoot a stage and you were the slowest and you had the worst hits. And you're like, "Ooh, maybe I'm not, you know, John Wayne on wheels. Maybe I do need some practice." Yeah, it's that's I can see that being a definite reality check. Or sanity check, I guess you could say. I mean, you, how often do you see guys at indoor shooting range and they got their girlfriends in there or whatever, and they're shooting, like take some five minutes to shoot a whole magazine, and then they bring the target back. I think I would have killed him, you know. And like, wow, really? You think he's gonna stand there for you know five minutes? Uh, and so, in that person's mind, I, I'm a good shooter. Look at that. They were all in the uh, you know chest area somewhere. And yeah, I just got some real valuable training. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, indoor shooting on a static range is just, I mean, it's not worthless, but it's almost worthless as far as training for a defensive situation. It's not, not very practical. Yeah, and if you go in there, you're doing some focused drills, training just marksmanship, and if you're on a range that actually lets you draw from the holster, you can get a little bit. But uh, most of those, you can't come out of the holster. Most of the time, they'll tell you you need to have at least one to two seconds between shots. So, you know, by the time I get that far in the rules for the range, I'm like, you know what, I think I'm going to go somewhere else. You know, yep. it's uh, what can I really do here other than make sure my gun works? Exactly. Or shoot, you know, try and sight something in or shoot some slow fire accuracy yeah. type drill. They're, they're great for that, but most things out of that, they... Now, if you're a bullseye competitor, then it's perfect for you. Yep. But none of us have bullseye guns at IDPA matches. Yeah, I'm sure. Not too much. Not Not fancy ultra-accurate stuff like that so much. Well, that's pretty much all i got for questions. You got anything else? Any last-minute thoughts for uh, new people that are wanting to get into IDPA? Well, I wouldn't be too intimidated. If you're new and you want to get into IDPA, don't be too intimidated by it. It's not that hard. And the people there at the range will walk you through you know, your first stages and help you get 
get the jitters out and have a good time. I wouldn't think about it too hard. Just go do it. You'll have fun. And you're the only one who's going to remember your score. Nobody else is. Oh, yeah. People aren't. They're not pointing and snickering and laughing. They're just there to have fun, just like you. Yep, that's cool. All right, well, thanks, Steve. Uh, Always a pleasure to talk to you. Always uh, a pleasure having a three-state you know, champion on Gunfighter Cast. Yeah, so, sometimes you get lucky. Well, that's uh, I guess that's pretty much it for episode number fifty-two. Yeah, fifty-two of Gunfighter Cast. Thanks, Steve. Uh, give us a uh, a Gunfighter Cast out. Until next time, Gunfighter Cast out. can now hear Gun Rights Radio Network while you're on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. On-demand news, talk, and more on your mobile phone. The latest episode is always available for you. No syncing needed and no memory or storage wasted. Available for your iPhone, Android phones, or your BlackBerry. Downloading is easy. Go to Stitcher.com or check out your app store. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. Gun Rights Radio Network shows can be found under sources.